So how many of you, like me, love the promises of God in the Bible? There are some of our favorites. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Amen? My God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Yes? I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. Yeah? Okay, now that we got you going, I have a few other lesser claimed promises. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are you when you are persecuted because of righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before me. 1 Peter, in the back of your Bible, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. So the implication of the promise there is that to the degree that we suffer for the name of Christ, we will be overjoyed when Christ returns. These are promises of God, integral to An integral part of being a sincere follower of Jesus Christ is living in the reality or at least the risk of being harshly persecuted simply because you are claiming the name of Jesus. Now I have another question for you, and indeed it is a trick question. How many of you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Don't, oh, you didn't think about that long enough. I'm going to ask it again, but don't anybody raise their hand. How many of you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Well, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and there we're going to read a portion of Scripture that contains a promise. And this is uh, just by way of an abbreviated context. This is something that was written by the Apostle Paul to his younger son in the faith, Timothy. And it was written as a personal letter, so when he says you, he's speaking to Timothy. But because of its nature, because it's inspired by God, that it has much broader implications outside of the relationship of Paul and Timothy, broader implications that apply to the church. And so... 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul says to him, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So there's a portion of the letter, a portion of the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, meant specifically for Timothy and then broadly to us these many years later. And contained inside of that passage is is a very clear categorical promise of God. Can you see it? Let me help you. Let me highlight it for you. It says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise of God. That everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And somehow this promise of God doesn't seem to find its way to our bumper stickers and our refrigerator (laughs) magnets, does it? But it remains a categorical statement of God. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That an essential part of following authentically after Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord of our lives is to live in the reality or the risk of persecution. How many of you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Each month, 322 Christians are killed because of their faith. Each month, 322 of your brothers and sisters in Christ are murdered because they call on the name of Jesus. Now, if statistics could be applied evenly, that would amount to about 10 a day. One every 2.4 hours. So that in the amount of time it will take you to get up and come to church and go home, one of your brothers or sisters, perhaps even a child, has been mercifully, brutally, mercilessly, brutally murdered because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's not to mention the countless acts of violence, destruction of churches, and extreme prejudice under which your brothers and sisters live around the world, simply because they're Christians. And in the past few years, we have all been horrified by videos and images of men and women and even children mercilessly slaughtered before our eyes simply because they claimed the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior in places where evil men consider it a capital crime against their own perverted sense of religion. And I could literally go on all day with statistics and stories of murder and torture and terrible abuse to men, women, and children who were simply following their hearts of love for Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of their lives. Like some of you, it is actually my honor to know personally pastors of Cornerstone Ministry in India who have been beaten to the point of broken bones by militant Hindus who hated them for their faith in Christ. So I don't 
think there's any doubt that such terrible things are happening somewhere in the world every single day. Can we agree to that? And I think if we're anything alike, I find these facts to be not only disturbing, but I'm also tempted to feel kind of desperately hopeless about the whole thing. I mean, what can I do about ISIS in Syria or the oppressive regime in North Korea? What possible impact can I have on murders in Sudan or Iran or the 55 countries in the world marked as hostile to Christians? Is there really anything that we can do or is it hopeless? So I sought the Lord on this very matter and he was generous to stir inside of me many things we can do, many, many things that we can do to share in the sufferings of our brothers and sisters around the world and make a definitive and powerful impact as we do. Would you like to hear some of them? I'd like to give you the top six things that we can do to truly help our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. And I'd like to give them in ascending order, meaning I'll start with number six and move up and save the first for the last, which will drive some of you outline people crazy because you'll have to fill out your outlines upside down. Number six on my list of things that we can do for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ around the world is that we can pray for them. We can pray for them. It might surprise you to see that that's number six on the list because you were anticipating it would be number one. When you pray, when you incorporate prayer for the persecuted church, you will have a ghost of a chance of doing the five things that I consider to be more important. I mean, what are we praying for? When we pray for persecuted believers, what are we praying for? Are we praying that we would somehow change the heart of God so that he would suddenly become concerned about the plight of his children who are being brutalized? That doesn't even make sense, does it? We can't be praying for that. So what are we praying for? We're praying, we're praying not to change the heart of God, but to change the heart of men. And to change the heart of men and women who are in places of power of persecution. So that the Holy Spirit would overcome them. So that someone would bear the message of the gospel to them, that they would turn and be saved. And you know, if, if you're in this material at all, you know of accounts of persecutors who came to Christ because of the, of the non-violent response of the ones that they were persecuting. We're praying for a change of heart. And not just in them, but in us. We're praying for a change of heart in us. We're praying for a release from the captivity of consumerism that has gripped this nation and has gripped the church. We're praying that God would change our hearts so that we could do these other things that I'm about to share with you. Number five, we can embrace them as our brothers and sisters. We can see who these people are. I think as long as these statistics remain statistics and these stories remain distant, then we can safely shuffle them into the recesses of our minds. We can put them into a, yeah, that's important, but place like we do with other things. But what happens when these statistics and stories become people? 
And what happens when these people become our family members? What happens when it is your mother or sister or daughter who was raped in Vietnam by the enemies of the cross? Does that change anything for us? These change, things change. But that's number five down on the list because it's a short-lived change because it relies on an emotional dynamic. So number four, we can go to them. We can go where they are. And just by being there among them, with our faith, encouraging their faith, will make a difference. You know, there are plentiful arguments against the point of short-term mission trips. And I understand. If we would have taken all the money that the 20 of us spent to get there and back and simply given it to the poor people of Nicaragua, that argument can be made. But in reality, (laughs) that's not why we went. We went because of the mysterious, invisible things that happen when the body of Christ does what God tells it to do. And we did it Because in engaging with other Christians there and other servants there, that there is something exponentially more powerful than money that happens. That there is power just in Christians going to be with other Christians, whether they know them or not. In the time of agreement, the power of God comes. Last Sunday morning, I sat with the team in a church service, a big church service, maybe a thousand people there maybe, in in Nicaragua. And it was on, and the pastor was on. I could tell, though I didn't understand a word that he said. Fortunately, in the worship that was dynamic, fortunately, I had somehow come to know that Santos means holy. And so when they were going, Santos, Santos, I'm, yes, I can do that. <laughs> and there was agreement. And I was overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit in that place. And he spoke to me and he dealt with me. As he did with many other members of the team. We can go there. Just being there releases a spiritual, a a Holy Spirit dynamic. I remember one time I was laying a cornerstone for a new church in India. And uh, it was something that I had had the privilege of doing before. Hey, Stephen, Pastor Stephen always had a list of things that I was going to do when I got there and wore me out. And so one day we were going, and I don't really remember which of you were with us on that trip, but I remember going, and there was a place we drove to this village, drove forever in the terrifying Indian traffic, and we got there and out in this place. And there was a place marked out with a little foundation thing and there's a place that the cornerstone was to be. And that's a big part of their their understanding and the way they move in the Holy Spirit is they dedicate the cornerstone of the building before it's ever built to the Lord. And we pulled into that place and I saw over here there's like an open shelter with 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 a roof over it and there were several hundred people crowded in there and there was somebody with a microphone, yada, 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 going on. And I said to Pastor Stephen, I said, what's going on over there? And he said, oh, that's a political rally, brother. And I said, oh, okay, well, that should be no problem then. And so we went in the team, and there's some other believers from that, because, you know, Cornerstone had come and shared the gospel, and people had found Christ, and they were forming into a little little church. And and I I just remembered kneeling down in the dirt and beginning to 
to, uh, he always had me pour the concrete, you know, and put the stone in and all this and had a particular way of doing this. And I was in the process of all this and just rejoicing that I was doing it. And, uh, but I had noticed that while we were singing prior to that, that there were some guys in the back of that, like four or five guys. I remember their faces very clearly. They were looking over at us as the political rally is going on. They were looking over at us. I thought, oh, well, how about that? They're curious. Until as I was doing this, four or five of them came over. And they started, they st- one of them in particular started an exchange with Pastor Stephen and Tom Mill, so I didn't have any idea what they were talking about, but I could tell by the tones of their voices it wasn't friendly. And that it was increasing in intensity as it went along. And so what happened in the moments afterwards, they, they then left, they went back over to those guys, and when they did that, I saw something in Pastor Stephen I had never seen before. And he had a look on his face and a tone in his voice. He's the most courageous, bold man I've ever known in my life. And he stooped over and he said to me, hurry, brother, hurry. So in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we dedicated that cornerstone. We completed our mission. (laughs) And, And the believers went off on their way. And the team, then we got in our vehicles and we headed out. And I understood what was happening. I could see what was happening. And on the smallest level, on the, the most infinitesimal level, I had the privilege of what it means to be afraid because you're a Christian. And that's a powerful thing. Because when a mob is forming to hurt you, you should be afraid. It doesn't mean you're a coward. I half think that had I not had a small team with me, Stephen never would have said that. Because he knows my life was in his hands, but I don't think the rest of the team had given him that permission. When we were down in Nicaragua, at least a dozen times one of the team members would come to us and say, when's our next mission trip? And Karen and I would always answer the same. (laughs) When do you want to lead it? When do you want it to be? Because, beloved, you are free. You are free to go. In fact, you are commanded to go by Jesus himself, who said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. And there's power in going. Power you may never see. Third, we can boldly witness to the people around us. You want to help people in persecuted lands? Then open up. Get your witness on. Boldly witness to people around us. The reality is most of you will likely never go on a foreign mission trip. And that's all right. There's no pressure to do that. But the good news is is you don't have to go anywhere. Because the reality is, just statistically speaking, the chances are that more than half of the people that you encounter in your everyday life do not have an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. How does boldly witnessing to the people around us help persecuted believers in faraway places? Well, let's flip it over. I think it's our utter lack of bold witness that actually contributes to higher levels of persecution in the world. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. 
You'll see something that Jesus said about this that I think really applies here. John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. Here's the key. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. So the key, the key to reducing persecution against believers in other places is to increase the probability of people knowing who Jesus is and coming to faith in Him, even here. You want to help the people, then we need boldly witness to the people around us. You know, there are so many wonderful things that this church is doing. I, I love you for it. I could go on and on and on about the ministries that you guys have started for this city here and around the, around the country and even in the world. But you know what we're not doing? In my assessment, we are not being a bold witness for Jesus Christ anymore. We are not consistently proclaiming the core truth of the gospel in such a way that men and women and young people are being saved. Want to know why we're not doing that? Because I have not been challenging you to do that in the ways that I used to. Why am I not challenging you to do that in the ways that I used to? Because I am not doing that in the ways that I used to. And I have recently come to the understanding that this is one of the broken parts of my life that is making a broken part in the church. I'll tell you why that is true when we get to point number one. But I am completely in favor of all the amazing things this church is doing, but not if it is replacing our bold declaration of the gospel to lost people. Because if in the process of feeding the homeless or helping someone find freedom from their addiction or developing a youth program, people are not coming to a full saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and complete surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord, then we are committing against them the most heinous crime possible. Because the Bible says it is appointed unto every man once to die, and after that the judgment. And at the judgment we will not be asked if we manage to become free from our addictions, but we will be examined for one thing. Do you authentically know Jesus Christ as Savior, and are you unreservedly surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord? So if we want to help them, then we have to become vocal about our about the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us. The second most important thing I think you can do to help persecuted believers around the world is that we can vote with prayerful seriousness. We can vote with prayerful seriousness. Now, I'm never going to be a pastor who tries to influence your voting selections. I will never publicly endorse a candidate or an issue. I fully respect your ability to pray and to think through those issues. 
But for God's sake, vote, and vote prayerfully and seriously. Don't ever let yourself show up to the voting booth and be surprised by what's inside. Because we must understand two things. One, we must understand the place of extreme influence America has in the world. We must understand the place of extreme influence that our country has in the whole world scheme. That as America goes, the world goes. That we are 6% of the world's population with maybe 60% of the world's influence. And with that comes an enormous responsibility. Because the second thing is that the power of the vote is making America what it is. And we are giving away our place of Christian influence in the world. As a nation, we're giving it away. We're voting it away. Votes of convenience. Well, this is what would suit me. This is what would cause me to live a more comfortable lifestyle. Well, I can concede that for that. And we are voting by convenience. And in voting by convenience, we are conceding our place of Christian influence in the global, global scheme. In my lifetime alone, in my lifetime alone, we have seen it become illegal to pray in public schools. We have seen the legalization of abortion. And now the legalization of gay marriage. Can you see where this line goes, beloved? How did these things happen? These decisions were made by Supreme Court justices. What did I have to do with that? We voted for people who appointed the Supreme Court justice and who confirmed their appointments. This is our fault. This is our fault. We bear the responsibility of the condition of America. And we're giving it away. And we can hardly continue to wonder how the otherwise good citizens of 20th century Germany fell prey to the Nazis, can we? I mean, don't you just wonder, how did those good people let Hitler and his goons rise up? Incrementally. Piece by piece by piece by piece by piece. I knew I was going to be in Nicaragua up until the day before voting day. Got back Monday night, vote Tuesday. So I prayed and researched and made all my selections. And because of my cracking on my head, I put all my selections in my phone so I just got in the voting booth and whipped out my phone. <laughs> this person, that judge, this trustee, da da da. And I won't tell you how I voted on the issues, but because I wouldn't want it to be construed as influence. But I knew exactly what I was going to do before I got behind the curtain. Don't ever, again, be surprised by what you find in there. All you have to do is get online and pull your specific ballot up. You can see the whole thing. Beloved. Okay, and then I think the most important thing that you can do as a Christian here to help persecuted believers there is we can stop apologizing for the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stop apologizing. Jesus said, these are his words. It's part of the gospel. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The apostles said in, John, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul said to Timothy, 
There is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. This is the exclusivity of the gospel. That by nature, it is exclusive. It includes, and by default, it excludes. And I wish it could be true that to be right with God and have the assurance of eternal life meant that one only had to be a gooder person than they were a badder person. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wish it could be true that to be right with God and have the assurance of eternal life, that one only had to be earnest in whatever religion they had inherited or chosen as their own. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know there are good people who are Muslim and who are Buddhists and who are Hindu and who are Rastafaris, and I wish it were true that they were all saved by their sincerity, but that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wish it were true that all Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses were saved because of their commitment, but when you reject the full and unique and exclusive deity of Jesus Christ, you are calling him a liar. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, no, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the exclusive message that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, was the only one who could do what was necessary to rescue us from our sin and make us right with God. It is exclusive, and there are no exceptions. That's the gospel of Jesus. And I don't like it. I don't like it that it's true. But it is. And for the past ten years, I have been dancing around these scriptures with interpretive techniques to try to make it not true. I have not shared them with you. But I've tried to make it not true. It somehow didn't seem fair to me. And at the end of the day, the Lord spoke to me and said, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And that is exactly this sense of being unfair. This is exactly the trick the devil used to keep me from witnessing the way I used to or challenging you to do the same. And that is an offense for which I should be fired by the elders of the church and a decision I would fully understand if they chose to make it. But it is also an offense I have earnestly sought forgiveness for and for the Holy Spirit to refill me with the power to boldly witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The core message of the very words of Jesus Christ is that he's the only way to heaven. You don't have to believe that. You don't have to accept it. But if you do not accept it, you are rejecting the words of Jesus. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. So when we reject the words of Jesus Christ, we reject Jesus Christ. If I don't want to be absolutely and exclusively faithful to Karen, then I should not be married to her. Because it's part of the deal. And I am always free to say that I don't believe in the exclusivity of marriage, but then I wouldn't be married. And we can say, I do not believe in the exclusivity of the gospel, but we would not be saved. Because we would be rejecting the very one who made it so clear. And when we continue to make apologies for the exclusivity of the gospel... 
And as we continue to try to make polite provision for all the other religions of the world as though they are all equally valid, then we give, give away our spiritual real estate to the devil and give him permission to chop off the heads of Christian children in Syria and Sudan, and eventually it will happen in San Francisco. Believe it. The first Bible verse I ever memorized, because, as you know, I wasn't raised in the church, so as a young adult, the first Bible verse I ever memorized was Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what happens when we apologize for the exclusivity of the gospel. We apologize in trying to make provision for everyone, everyone to be happy. But if we apologize long enough, we will become embarrassed by the gospel. And as we are embarrassed by the gospel, we will become ashamed of the gospel. And if we are ashamed of the gospel, the Bible says that Jesus will not remember us before his Father in heaven. It's just time, beloved. It's just time. I have repented of this, and I, I repent before you. And if I'm the only one in this room who's sensing that stirring of conviction from the Holy Spirit, then so be it. God has done His work in me. But if there are others of you who right now have, God forgive me, followed me down this path of tolerance and have lost your way in your bold declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I invite you to forgive me and repent to God with me. And what we need in addition to our repentance, because when we confess our sins, the Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What we need is the filling of the Holy Spirit who lives in us to bear witness to the good things of God, the truth of the gospel. Father in heaven, as we bow before you at this time, it is our profound luxury to live in America. We trust your sovereignty, Lord, that you caused us to be born here, to come here, and to live here under your mighty hand. And indeed, we do not suffer persecution, perhaps an insult or an embarrassment, but we do not normally suffer persecution. And so we just say to you, O Lord, in your sovereignty, having placed us here, you must have known what you want from us. And so we want you to speak to us this morning and continue to speak to us this morning about the place of, of profound influence that you have given to each one of us in the world. And would you come now and would you light a fire in us to be bold declarations of the gospel itself? Would you cut away every sin that so easily entangles us and tears us down? Would you light that fire again and clear away all this smoldering wicks that have served as substitutes up to this time would you pour out your holy spirit on this assembly father and would you hear our repentance would you see our faith would you hear our cry for the holy spirit to come now 
and empower us with great boldness as you did the apostles to speak your word boldly. Father, would you come and would you finish the work that you began when you envisioned the launching of this fellowship so many years ago. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come now and to move among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, church, and I just want you to have your time with the Lord wherever you are with this. I invite you, as always, to come front if coming up front is is just something that is meaningful to you.